proceed on with the meeting. I was thinking before when Cecil asked me whether I would chair this meeting tonight. I, first of all, my reaction was, you know, man, you know, come a long way. You know, I started patting myself in the back. And, uh, you know, then I started thinking of the, you know, the fact that everything that's come to me has come to me through this program. And, uh, you know, I got thinking, would he, would he have asked me this 13 years ago? And I came up to the conclusion, I don't think so. Uh, I was the type of drinker that when I first sobered up, I was in the hospital on a suspected case of ulcers, bleeding ulcers, and uh, they had to ban the rectal thermometer because they were a little scared of brain damage. And uh, so that, that's about the headspace I'm coming from. Another thing I was thinking, you know, they say that fatal accidents happen within 95, or 95% of fatal accidents happen within five miles of home. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of laugh about it now, but I can remember, you know, thinking, well, hell, if I move, you know, there isn't much chance of me getting knocked off in one of them, you know, really bright. But, uh, you know, the program to me is, has sort of brought things a long way. I see a lot of Al-Anon people sitting out there, and, uh, you know, we've got that little running thing going with Al-Anon and AA, and... Uh, I just thought of a little story here. My wife and I were having our nightly little fight. I said to her, you know, I said, you're so damn stupid that you think that Barnum and Bailey are married. She said, well, really doesn't matter as long as they love each other. <laughs> you know, I thought about it for a while. I guess at least, you know, uh, they've got an open mind. So uh, we've got we've to give them a little credit, too. Uh, I notice here on the, most of our speakers from the publicity part of it that they're all Americans. And uh, the first thing I noticed about that again last night at the Meet the Speaker meeting was that most of these guys talk funny. You know, uh, I guess, you know, what we got when we go down there is an accent. But they come up here and they talk funny. So. You know, however, you know, if they took the marbles out of their mouth, we'd probably understand them a little better. Um, it's really funny. I was at the international convention last year, and uh, we're standing outside the stadium discussing this fact about why the United States is so far ahead in the space program. And somebody came up with the idea that probably the reason is that they take up space in school. So... Uh, that pretty well describes it. And which that brings me to the serious part of our program, and that's uh, our speaker for tonight. Uh, I went over before and I said to Norm, I said, you know, tell me about you, what, what I should say when I introduce you. He sat there, you know, a typical American sneer. He said, this is an anonymous program. So that pretty well left me... Uh, where it was at. All I've really, you know, derived out of the whole thing by listening to him at the public information luncheon and listening to him last night on TV and uh, talking to him tonight, the only thing I can get from him is that he was Bill Wilson's sponsor. Um, another thing, uh, I said, how long you been sober? He said, a long time. 
know, I, th- I think this is really going to be good. I hope he fills in a few of these details. I said, we've got a guy here, Cecil C., he's been sober about four years longer than when the program started. And I said, do you rate with him? Close. Uh, I'm really getting getting to feel what, what this is all about. I said, where are you from? He said, uh, Arcadia. I said, that's your group? He said, yeah. That gives me to think that uh must be about the same size as Crutwell. Uh, at least we name our groups down here now. Um, I, another thing that he informed me was that uh, it was the home of the San Anita racetrack. So, uh, you know, I, I can tell just by the scanty details that this fella didn't fall into AA through the back door. So, uh, you know, I think what I'll do is shut up and I'll let Norm fill us in on some of these details. So if you'd like to give a good, warm Prince Albert welcome to Norm A. from California. Thank you very much, Dave, for all those kind words. I... When you sit back there, you can only hear half of them, so you just laugh because everybody else is laughing. I don't know what the hell he said. <laughs> uh, I'm sure happy to have the opportunity to be here this evening and to participate, to be part of this roundup that you got going up here, and I certainly want to thank the committee. I want to thank Cease for the invitation to be up here, even though that the uh, invitation was kind of ragged. You, I mentioned the other night that he called me about three months ago, said, would you participate? I said, sure. He said, I'm going to let you know. And so uh, I think it was four days ago, he gave me a call, and he said, you're coming, aren't you? And I said, where? <clears throat> but in all seriousness, Cease, I'm real happy to have the opportunity to be here and to share my experience, strength, and hope with you folks that I can get in another day of sobriety. I certainly want to thank the people for the hospitality that they've shown us since we've been here. I want to thank... Jack and Lila for trucking us around the town and for picking us up and taking care of us. And for the hospitality that, uh, as I made mention before, the hospitality that the Texans talk about, but you got to come to Canada to find it, I'll guarantee you that. And I thank you very much. I also want to welcome all of the new people that are here this evening for your first, second, or third meeting or first 30 days in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I take it for granted some new people here. You know, we floated through the seasons, the uh, February and March is the... Last of the Christmas holdouts, and uh, we're now uh, moving on through uh, into the light wine and beer season, and we uh, of the summertime, you see, and some of them just can't hang in there, and we get a lot of fallout about this time. And so I'm sure that we've got some new people that are sitting out there tonight for your first meetings in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you're sitting there and you're new, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that you've now associated yourself with one of the most popular unpopular fellowships in the world. You know, nobody looks forward to becoming an alcoholic and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because, you know, there isn't a hell of a lot of class to being an alcoholic and a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, none of us go down there to our high school counselor and sit down. And he says, yo, Norm, what would you like to be? And I, I said, an alcoholic. And he said, marvelous. We've got a hell of a program for jackasses, Norm. Here you go. Well, and I took his program. I ripped the city for 15 years and I ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And everybody lived happily ever after. And you know it and I know that that isn't the way it is. Hell, a practicing alcoholic out there, he don't want to come to AA because this is a very unpopular fellowship. He doesn't want to come in here because he doesn't have a problem. You know, I'm no alcoholic. The day before I got here, I'm a heavy drinker and a victim of unusual circumstances, rotten drivers and bad whiskey, but man, I ain't no alcoholic, you know. You're laying there on the floor. I ain't an alcoholic, you know. I'm tired, man. No. 
So we resist this program right down to the bitter end. We try everything we can find out there before we come in. And finally, when there's nothing left to try, we totally surrender and we come on in. And then it becomes the most popular fellowship in the world because it saved our life. And to the new people that are out there this evening, why, welcome, if you will, and to keep coming back. And to qualify that beginning statement I made for the benefit of the new people out there tonight, I am an alcoholic. And I'm not by any stretch of the imagination an authority, a consultant, or even a counselor on the program Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, I heard a little story uh, uh, about a consultant, uh, and it's clean. I thought I might bring it up. And a fellow, after a meeting one night, he came up to him and he says, Norman, you know what a consultant is? And I says, yeah, I think I do. And he says, well, let me set you straight on it. He said, a consultant is like the old tomcat. <clears throat> and he's going out a lot, and so his owner, he takes him down to the vet, and he gets him fixed up. And he brings him on home. <clears throat> now, the old tomcat, he still keeps going out at night. But he don't do much, he just consults. <laughs> anyway, for the better of the new people, I'm an example, good or bad, to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous Works. That it has been necessary for me to take a drink, steal anything, and go to jail now for seven days, three months, and 27 years. <laughs> I thought that up while I was sitting there. <laughs> uh, but to the new people that are sitting out there tonight, why, uh, it's a difficult thing, I'm sure, when you hear people standing up here talking about a lot of sobriety. And uh, I can understand that. I can, you know, sympathize. I can still remember sitting in that first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I hope the hell I never forget. I'm sitting there in that first AA meeting, and I'm 29 years old. And the guy stands up in front of the meeting that night, and he said, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink, steal anything, and go to jail now for nine and a half years. And my reaction to that is I want to jump up and I want to say, you're the biggest liar I've ever listened to. How the hell could a guy cut it out there for nine and a half years if he doesn't drink? I didn't come to AA for nine and a half years. I come to AA for a little while. Yeah, I had a lot of heat on out there in the street and I wanted to get the heat off, but I don't want to hang in here for the next nine and a half years. And I, I was overwhelmed. And I thought, you know, how can you possibly cut it? How can you make it out there? How can you deal with all those rotten people and meet your responsibilities and be honest? You couldn't steal anymore, and he hadn't had a hooker now for nine and a half years, and that's a drink, incidentally, where I come from. I don't know what it is. In, I don't know what it is in Canada, but it's a drink in L.A., yeah. <clears throat> anyway, this guy hadn't had a drink for the last nine and a half years, and I, you know, I just, I couldn't correlate it, and I thought, you know, nine and a half years, I, I just can't make it. I, uh... Come in here, you know, to try to get get myself together to find a way that I wouldn't hurt myself any longer. To be able to get back out there and get going because I had a lot to do. You know, alcoholics are busy people. I had a hell of a lot to do out there. I uh, had uh, people who were waiting for me, my best friends. I couldn't remember their names, but they were all my best friends. And I, I had to get out there and get going with them. I know that they probably would uh, just kind of pass along the wayside if I wasn't there to help guide them through life. You <laughs> see, uh, well, I damn near rationalized myself right out the door and into those gin mills, but... My salvation was, and for you who are new, was that I kept going to meetings because I had a lot of questions, and I found the answers to my questions because I, I went to a lot of meetings. I found out that the program didn't go for the next nine and a half years. I didn't have to be concerned. That all I really had to be concerned about, he says, Norm, all you got to take care of is today. It's 24 hours. It's right now. And that's really it is. That's what it is, isn't it? Right now. There isn't any more than this moment. Being able to get all I can get, good, bad, or indifferent, right now. I couldn't change what happened a couple of hours ago, and I couldn't tell you for sure what's going to happen a couple of hours from now. But if I got anything going in my life, it's going right now. And being able to take care of it, be able to take care of the now period of my life, 
Well, I come to find out that the day would take care of itself, but I didn't have to drink. And pretty soon I thought if I could get in a day, you know, I might get a week, and the week went, and then it was a month. Before you knew it, well, it was a year, and now it's been 27, it was just the other day. <clears throat> the other day that <clears throat> I sat there in that first AA meeting, it went that fast. I'm sitting there, and, and I'm wondering, you know, why am I an alcoholic? You know, I don't think any alky come to this program that didn't sit there and wonder, why the hell am I an alcoholic? You know, of all the things I could have been. <clears throat> why am I an alcoholic? You know, we got a million people in AA, you got a million answers to that question. Because the only thing a couple of alcoholics agree upon is the fact that AA works. Other than that, we're going to argue about everything else. You see, so we're going to argue about the fact of what, the, what makes an alcoholic. And uh, I felt, you know, possibly, probably, that my family created my alcoholism. I come from a heavy-drinking family. Uh, we drank all of our lives. Uh, pretty big family. Irish-Italian family, uh, which doesn't mean a hell of a lot, except you're not too bright and you talk a lot with your hands. That's about all you're going to get out of that. I, you know, I, I thought, you know, that uh, being Irish-Italian created my alcoholism, yet there was no other alcoholic in the entire family, so apparently that wasn't it. I come to find out that the Italians made it and the Irish drank it, and I'm the alcoholic, you see. My family, my environment, I felt, you know, that the city created my problem because I'm coming out of L.A., but Los Angeles is a city, and that's all it is. And cities don't make alcoholics. I'm convinced today that uh, you can get out of anywhere you want to get out of if you want it bad enough and you're willing to make the sacrifices together to do it. And by the same token, I can be anybody today if I stay sober. I can do anything I want to do if I want that bad enough and I'm willing to make the sacrifices together to do that. But I also recognize that people, places, and things did not create my alcoholism. I am an alcoholic, and if you're new, maybe your problem's the same. I'm an alcoholic because I drank too much whiskey. And I figured that out by myself. What a giant decision that is. Man, I drank that booze out there as hard and as fast as I could drink it. That was my problem. And before I, and I'm the guy that did the drinking, so when you get right down to it, I'm the problem. I'm the biggest problem I ever had in my life, and that hasn't changed up to and including today. Because no matter where I go, I'm the first guy to get there, Right. No, I don't, did any of us have to call anybody up and say, will you come down and help me get it screwed up? No, I'm able to handle that all right. I don't need any assistance. I can stand out there and I can overreact to life and to living anytime I want to, yeah. I stood out there and refused to buy living on living terms. I want it my way. I am the problem. Prior to ever taking a drink, I come to find out, that, you know, I'm a rationalizer, a justifier, a compromiser, and I got a rotten attitude. And I had all that before the booze. And you don't need much more than that when you get right down to it. And still comes into my life today. Sure, making money's good, but getting even's better sometimes, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got that rotten attitude. Traveled half the world in half my life and made a complete ass of myself. I spent money I didn't have buying things I didn't need, trying to impress people I didn't like. I sat around them gin mills by the hours, you know, talked in millions, spent in thousands, never had a nickel in my pocket. <clears throat> Built them castles in the air, formed the corporations, and wondered what the poor people are doing. Uh, yeah. Drove them Cadillacs up and down the barn night after night after night. <laughs> yeah. And when them high rollers said, what do you do? I said, man, I do it all. I thought you knew that. <laughs> I am the general manager of the universe. That's what the hell I am. And don't you ever forget that. The alcoholic spends a lifetime out there impressing a group of people he's never met in his life that he's something he isn't. Right. I drove around L.A. in the summertime with the windows rolled up in my car to make them think I had an air conditioner. <laughs> and I heard, you know, years ago, I heard a story, and, I, and you may have heard the story, but it's worth passing on. It was the story of my life. <clears throat> and I heard it from this Texican. And it's about the blacksmith making them horseshoe. It's clean. <clears throat> it's about this blacksmith. He's making a horseshoe. And he's standing there, and he pounds out that horseshoe. 
and he throws it down on the ground. And an old cowboy's standing there watching that whole deal. And he reaches down, and he picks up that horseshoe, and quickly throws it back down on the ground. And the old blacksmith turned to him, and he said, hot, wasn't it? And the old cowboy said, no, it doesn't take me long to look at a horseshoe. <laughs> kind of sneaks up on you a little bit there, doesn't it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's the story of my life, you know, running around picking up the hot horseshoe. <laughs> Justifying the stupidity of my existence. Oh, a guy, you know, laying there on the ground, dead drunk, and the guy says, Norm, you're on the ground, dead drunk. And I said, the hell I am, I love the ground, man, you don't, sure. Well, now you know something, after I got here to the program and I walked through the doors, I found out I didn't have to work. I didn't have to live that way any longer. I found out that I didn't have to justify the stupidity. I found out I didn't have to impress anybody anywhere about anything anymore. That all I gotta be is me. And if you're new here this evening, you might give that a thought. And you might buy the package that's available to you here. And you might take it with me out there tomorrow on that city street, and you might spend a day out there being sober and being yourself, not having to justify your existence or compromise your life if you don't want to. It's a hell of a deal. It's the best deal I ever had in my life. And I'm a guy that looked half the world out there trying to find the best deal. And I didn't find it until I got here, until I was involved and surrounded by a marvelous group of people who would call themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. This evening, I'll tell you a little bit about me as to what I was like, what happened, what I'm trying to be like now, what the program means. I told you a great deal about myself. I'm a guy with a bad attitude. You got a bad attitude, you got a lot of trouble. <clears throat> I started getting a lot of trouble in 39. I was picked up in 39 by the police, not because I was drinking, but because I was stealing. <clears throat> I'm a thief by trade. I'm an alcoholic by absorption. <laughs> I, was, I was a vice president, general manager of all the outside operations of the Midnight Auto Supply in the San Gabriel Valley. <laughs> I was in the car business, and uh, I had got that yellow Cadillac, incidentally. <laughs> but I was thinking about it. <clears throat> My heart went out to that guy that hooked it. What a mover he's got to be. Uh, yeah. In the beginning, while I was hooking <clears throat> car parts, you know, heaters, radios, spotlights, hubcaps, anything you could move, then we moved into cars because it, it got to be such a job to gather up all that crap. So we just stole cars, and it was a marvelous experience. Loved every minute of it. Best business I was ever in in my life. Because you didn't need any money to get into it. And you didn't carry any inventory. And everything you turned is 100% profit. How the hell are you going to beat that lick, huh? And it's exciting. God, that first probation officer, I'll never forget, he says, son, why do you steal? I said, man, I like it. I never felt it was that complicated, just kind of earthy. And I went on to explain to him, you, you don't understand when you've hooked a man's car and you're driving away. And he's running after you. <laughs> God, your heart leaps right up in your throat. You break out in a cold sweating for ten seconds, man, you're living there. Jesus, it just excites the hell out of me talking about it tonight. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's illegal. <clears throat> and eventually, you're going to get caught. The old law retribution says what's going out is coming back, and if you're going to play, you got to pay. <clears throat> it's kind of a rotten setup, but that's the way it is. And so I stood in my front of my first judge in 1939, and I got, I got sentenced, and I got sent to jail. I was there a little bit of time, got a probation, got released, came back to L.A., looking for that fantasy land, <clears throat> 40 or 41, I don't remember exactly, it doesn't make any difference. I was looking for that fantasy land out there, and the fantasy land I was trying to find <clears throat> was booze. It was Easter week in L.A., Balboa Beach, the Rendezvous Ballroom, Stan Kenton, and Padre Beer. <clears throat> Man, what a time. Drink a little Padre, get a little buzz on, go in the dance hall, dance with them dollies, <laughs> act four times drunk or what we were, breathe on the girls, or, you know, let them know. Huh? <laughs> Big man's in from L.A., baby. Oh, yeah. And we had a lot of fun. In the beginning, I had a lot of fun. I'm not alcoholic uh, by virtue of my inheritance. Uh, a lot of people feel they were alcoholic the first time out of the shoot. 
<clears throat> and they are, I'm sure, but I wasn't. I kind of ground it out. <clears throat> I had fun with it in the beginning. It was the big bands in the dance halls and Padre Bear and girls and good time. <clears throat> but I moved out of Padre because I didn't do enough. And I moved into Rainier Ale, the old Green Death. And from the Green Death, <clears throat> I moved down to Whiskey. And when I got to Whiskey, there it was. Whiskey was the greatest thing made since money and girls. Because, man, that Whiskey gets you downtown. Man, and I want to be downtown. <laughs> All my life, I want to get downtown. And I don't want to be downtown a little bit. I want to get there right now. And that's one thing about drinking whiskey. It gets your attention, doesn't it? Man. Ah. Eventually, I acquired a taste for it. I like to taste. In the beginning, I'll be the first to admit, it's, it's difficult. You know, when you're young and you're out there training, <clears throat> and I broke in on 10 High, and, and that crap was rotten, you know. That old 10 High burned Jesus. It burned going and coming. It ran out my nose made my eyes water a lot. <laughs> but I hung in. Well, I think that's important. If you're going to be an alcoholic, you don't give up because you throw up a little. Stay in there. The day comes when you can drink a pint of whiskey and you don't heave anymore and it kind of gives you a sense of well-being, doesn't it? But I'll tell you something else. A lot's to be said about drinking cheap whiskey when you don't throw it up. When you throw it up, you don't lose much, right? You know, this guy's out there drinking whiskey. costs ten, eleven dollars a fifth. Now, can you imagine heaving that? There it goes. Eleven dollars all. <laughs> That'd make you sick watching it roll out, wouldn't it, huh? Well, that whiskey totally changed my personality, I'll guarantee you that. And I started getting a little trouble, getting a little jam here and there. And by the end of 1941, I'm in a hell of a jam. I violated my probation. The probation department said you can go to jail or you can go in the service. So I joined the Navy because I'd never been in the Navy. It was another bad decision. When I got in the Navy, all the enemies I had in L.A. had joined the Navy the same day I did. I've always reacted to authority. The Navy was authority. I went in in January of 42 as seaman. Four years later, I came out, and I was a seaman. <clears throat> People said that's hard to do, but not really. Not if you work at it. You know how that is, huh? An alcoholic can do anything he puts his mind to. Now, the only reason I didn't get a BCD, a kick out, uh, what's these, a bad conduct discharge or something worse is that I, I'm a hard worker. And I think you can say that about 90% of the alcoholics are hard workers. they got to be. An alky's got to work 25% harder than anybody else just to stay even out there, right? You know, he's got the heat on all the time. He's got to go like hell and get that heat off. <clears throat> he does a hell of a job on Tuesday. Best day an alky has. He missed Monday. Go on Tuesday, right? You know, where you're working, you see a guy running all over hell on Tuesday. He's an alcoholic, yeah. He's getting that heat off out there. And that was the story of my naval career. I had three court marshals. I had a deck, a summary. A general court-martial. The general court-martial was the highest the Navy had to offer at that time. People used to point me out and say, there goes the biggest we ever had right there. You know, It kind of made me feel good. Nobody had one like me, right? Well, that was short-lived because they transferred me off to the ship. They went to trial and read off. And I got 11 and a half months in a Navy brig run by the Marine Corps. I don't even need to get into that. When they asked me to jump, I said, how far? Oh, yeah. But I got restored to duty because we went for clemency. And I fulfilled my commitment. And I came out of the service. 1946. 1946, I'm back to L.A. 1946, I am that alcoholic out there and don't know it. I'm looking for the answer living out there in that quart of whiskey. One's too many and a thousand aren't enough. <clears throat> my life totally revolves around booze. People that sell it and people that drink it. And I have a dozen drinks, no control of my destiny. Can't live with it and can't live without it and I don't want to. Involved totally. The alcoholic, but I won't surrender. Because I feel deep inside, somewhere, somehow, I'm going to find that absolute control. I'll drink like my old man and my brothers. In 1946, I heard about this program. God moving in strange and mysterious ways. Huh? No matter what you do or you don't do, it's going to work out that way for you anyway. 
1946, I made a profound statement to myself. I said, self, don't drink in Pasadena. That's a rotten town. I was having a lot of trouble in Pasadena. As a matter of fact, I had been arrested four times. <clears throat> the last time was a 502, drunk driving. Judge gave me a year, suspended it, put me on three years probation. I said, if you're caught in a place that serves or sells alcoholic beverages, you're going to jail for a year. And I knew that judge. He and I had grown up together. He had never lied to me in his life. And so I knew that if I come back, I'm going to can. And so I said, you know, don't drink in that pound. Don't get drunk in Pasadena, Norm. So I didn't. Two or three months went by. I'm doing well. Things are going good. Prosperity is around the corner. <laughs> One night I'm drinking and I committed the cardinal sin. <clears throat> I began to think. That's very bad. An alcoholic should think or drink, but he should never do them both at the same time. I got to thinking about that rotten judge, that lousy town, that Pasadena. I'm a veteran. I want to go back. I'm going back. What the hell? After you've analyzed that problem, you go back. Where am I? Pasadena. <clears throat> I got a load on. Before you know it, well, I'm coming out and getting my car. I'm dead drunk. Pulling out one of the main drags, and before you know it, a car makes a turn in front of me. <clears throat> I can't see it. And I hit it. <clears throat> and I run from the scene of the accident because I'm frightened. All my life, I'm frightened. All my life, I'm living on the edge. <clears throat> I run. Because I know I'm in serious trouble. I'm dead drunk. I have no driver's license. I'm in Pasadena. I couldn't have gotten three or four blocks, and the police caught up with me. And when I woke up in the morning, I was in the slammer. And I'm laying there on that concrete floor. Oh, yeah. I'm not in the drunk tank, but I'm in the high-power tank. I'm in there by myself. I pulled out the book and slip, and they got me on a 501 felony. Drunk driving, hit-and-run bodily injury involved. I'm scared to death. They come and they get me out and they load me into that elevator. And you're standing there with a bunch of other drunks and you're getting that used bourbon back and forth. Oh, oh God, that's lovely. And then that elevator drops three floors. Everything's right up there. And then you're sitting there in that room and you're waiting for your name to be called. And they call your name and you walk through the courtroom and you stand there in front of the judge and you're hanging your head. And he tells you what kind of an individual you are. And he says, Bailiff, get him out of here. And you know when it gets so bad today that I don't think I can stand it. When I think it's going solely out there in the street, I say, God, give me the strength to remember if I think it's bad today, let me remember how it was. The humility and humiliation that I felt as I stood in front of that man. <clears throat> how I hung my head. Or let me remember the years like 51 when I'm laying in the tank in Big Spring, Texas, on a dirt floor, and the cockroaches are running over my head, and I'm so sick I can't get up. <clears throat> how they kept me there for three days, and all I had was water, because that's all they gave you. If I think it's tough today, I say, God, let me remember who I am and where I came from, and what it took to bring me to this point in my life. And let me remember that you've been very kind to me. In spite of me, you've been there. <clears throat> in spite of myself, the hand that guides. Moving in strange and mysterious ways. Coming back to a town to get dead drunk that I said I'd never come back to again to hit a car to damn near kill four people. To end up in the city jail, sharing a cell with a guy going to AA. The 250 guys are in that jail, but one guy, one guy gets out of jail once a week to go to AA. That's my cell partner. That's a guy named Sully. Sullivan said, Norm, why don't you go to a meeting with me? I'll fix it with a sergeant. And I said, Sully, I'm not going to any AA meeting with you because I'm not an alcoholic. You don't understand. It's not me. It's the people, the rotten people out there. Once you get the rotten people straight now, it's going to be all right. And I'm too young to be an alky. What the hell, I get to be your age? I'll think about it. You're 36. You're over the hill. You know that. What do you got to contribute to anybody out there, man? I've eaten those words several hundred times. Believe me. You really don't start getting it on until you hit 56. Isn't that right? Sure. Everybody 56 say yes. Anyway, I felt that I really didn't have a, a drinking problem, and that, but the seed. That seed we talk about in AA, the seed was planted. And I went back out, and I drank for another eight years, and my friend went his way. 
And in that eight-year period of time, I tried to consume enough booze to make some kind of qualification for this program. I went to work for one of the largest construction firms in the world, and I stayed with these people 11 years. And in that 11-year period of time, I was at the right place at the right time, and the jobs were big and better. And the money coming in, the responsibility, and the ego's getting bigger. And I'm drinking better booze in better places. You know how it is. And then I had a little setback. I met and married a red-headed Irish woman. Had a violent temper, a rotten disposition, and yelled at me all the time. Not only that, she was pregnant every other year. Can you believe that? This marriage, we had a lot of problems. My bar associates had told me, Now, Norm, if you're going to get married, make sure you marry a woman who's got a good job. <clears throat> you know, you've doubled your income. You've got an asset. You marry a woman who isn't working. What the hell? you got a liability. All right, about midnight, and you're talking to them bar buddies of years. That makes a lot of sense. It's all red. Had a hell of a job. We decided to turn the trick, and we got married. We are married three or four months, and she walks in the house one day, or I did. I don't really remember. She says, Norm, I'm pregnant. Been to the doctor. He says, i got to quit my job. i got to get off my feet. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. <clears throat> did you ever tell an alcoholic something you don't want to believe? I don't want to believe that, you know. Matter of fact, I thought we ought to have a second opinion on it. You don't want to go off half cock. But her being Irish and hard-headed, she says, that's the way it's going to be. And I thought, well, she's home free. Nine months, that caper takes, that ain't bad. We'll give her two to get on her feet. We'll get the rotten job back. Everything's going to be just like it was. Isn't that right? That's the story of the Alkie's life. Everything's going to be just like it was. Christ, that was 33 years ago. That woman ain't turned a tap since that day. <laughs> Got herself in that shape eight times. Can you believe that? I couldn't believe it. I sat around them gin mills wondering, how the hell can it happen? I ain't home that much anymore. <laughs> you know, that Vatican roulette, the number come up 13 every other year. Zing, there she goes, you know, St. Luke's. We didn't end up with eight children, but we had the eight pregnancies, and this was a very depressing thing. All this responsibility. <clears throat> Not only that, these, God, these conversations we'd have. You'd say, you're drunk again. And I'd say, you know, who me? How the hell does she know? Well, you know, like a hundred guys are there with you. You know who she's talking to, but uh, you always come back, who me? <clears throat> she hadn't smelled my breath. Fifteen feet away, she's accused me of being drunk. I remember a Sunday I'd had a bad day. A guy'd open my eye up. I had dried blood all down the side of my face with shirts torn, and I got one shoe on. I was trying to figure out how she knew I'd been drinking. <laughs> I had this marvelous story I was going to tell her. Never got the opportunity. You know how them red-headed women are, man, they bear right down. You know, you're drunk again. Who, me? Yeah, you. <clears throat> Do you know who you're talking to? That, that always got her. Do you know who you're talking to? And then I'd introduce myself. I'm old Norm, baby. That's who the hell I am, and don't you ever forget that. And then she'd mimic me. as only the way them Irish women can do it. I'm old Norm. That's who I am. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's very degrading for a high roller, isn't it, huh? Standing there with your best friend. <laughs> your new business partner. You met him in the bar last night. You've invited him home. And he agrees, because he doesn't want to go home alone either. <laughs> and so there you stand, the blind leading the blind, saying, You've embarrassed me in front of my best friend. And I couldn't think of his name. Ah. <laughs> but I would tell her, if you don't shut that Irish mouth and apologize for what you've just said, I'm going to leave this dump baby and I ain't never coming back. And what do you think of that? And she would throw all my clothes out. <laughs> well, you got to save face in front of this guy, so you pick the damn clothes up, right? And you pack them out to the car, in and out, in and out, loading up that car. That clothes-packing alcoholic is a joy to the neighborhood out there, isn't he? <laughs> Why? 
beats the hell out of gun smoke every Saturday night, doesn't it? Watching the old Alky loading up his car out there, sitting in the front seat, honking his horn, honk, honk, honk. Alcoholics are fascinated by horns, honk, you know. Signaling the neighbors, I'm going, Charlie. She did it again. I am never coming back. And off into the sunset, drives the alcoholic, never to return, right? <laughs> a couple of days later, you're tapped out. You're sleeping in the front seat of your car. We got a lot of car sleepers in AA. <laughs> you got your head screwed up under the armrest and the door handle in your ear, right? <clears throat> Ever wake up about midnight, you're sick as hell, and you think your window's down, but it's up. <clears throat> you know. <clears throat> Knock the hell out of your head and throw up in your own window. And then you always roll the window down. Squish, 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 squish. I never knew why I rolled it down. Now you got to drive home. you got to go home and wash your car out. On the way home, you have other problems. You have a flat tire. If you're a true, full-blown alcoholic, you would not think about changing that tire. Because everything that's disagreeable in an alcoholic's life will go away, right? So you drive on it. And sure enough, it goes away. (laughs) It gets all chewed up in there. And it disappears. You're now driving on the rim. They call them rim drivers in AA. That makes a lot of noise. Sparks flying. Neighbors running out, getting the kids the hell out of the way. You got the death grip on that steering wheel coming down the street you live on, right? Pull that car into the driveway, up on the lawn. Open the door, fall out. There you go. Then you lay out in the lawn for an hour or so and get up and say to yourself, I wonder if anybody saw me. Because if you're an alcoholic, you're concerned about your reputation. We worry all the time about what people think about us. As we lay around in jail, on the lawn, on the street and the sidewalk, in a hedge. Hedges are hard on alcoholics. If you ever fall in a hedge, got their hell to get out of. They get your clothes, you know. I remember I fell in a hedge in Phoenix. I couldn't, I had the feeling I was going to die there. You know, I couldn't get out. Uh, nobody can make as much out of a hedge as an alcoholic, I'll tell you that. <clears throat> but you can see under the conditions that I existed under, very little of my drinking was, was done around that house. Would have been anyway because I'm not a home drinker. I'll be the first to admit a home drinker is a low overhead drinker. If you're, you know, drinking in the house, you keep the overhead down. <clears throat> you're a bar drinker, it's a high overhead kind of drinking. But when you're a home drinker, who the hell's there to tell how good you are? Her. Her don't believe none of it, does she? No. If you're a bar drinker, why, man, there's a lot of people there letting know how good you are. I like them. I like the dark lights. I like the rotten music that hammered at you. I like them intellectual giants that sat there and solved the problems of the world. I like sitting there about midnight. You kind of get that Maybelline look, kind of wide-eyed, sitting there, looking in that mirror. You know, they put mirrors in them gin mills so alcoholics can stare at themselves. You're just kind of maybelline Ah, there you are, you... You devil, you. There you are. Good-looking, well-built. You know you're well-built. You're bringing that drink up. You look at your arm. You killer, you. <laughs> Hundred and fifty ringing wet in those days. I couldn't lick my lips, let alone anybody else. <laughs> but that whiskey makes a killer out of you. You're a lover and a killer. Some nights you get so drunk you can't remember what you are. Well, a lover and a killer tonight, you know. You wonder why all the dollies are down there. <laughs> Intellectual giant. Got a $30 smiling Frankie Gordon suit on. <clears throat> you got 50 cents worth of chili right down the front of you there, huh? <clears throat> you smell bad. You can't talk. You mumble. <clears throat> you know. How can you be romantic when that's all you can say is, <clears throat> you know? 
is you slowly slide off the bar stool onto the floor. Or you go to the men's room. Another problem. Pay toilet. Bad. Haven't got any money. You got to slide under the door, right? <clears throat> There's got to be some door sliders here tonight, I'm sure. <laughs> then you slide out again. Never knowing till you get to AA. Once you get in, all you got to do is turn the handle and walk out, huh? <laughs> but not the alcoholic. Slide in, slide out. That's the way it's going to be. And the ultimate of the evening is you lose your car. Uh, you wander around the streets looking for your car. God. She'd get emotionally upset over it. Call home to your wife. Did you take my car? I can't find it. Oh, God. It's best, though, really not to talk about losing cars to non-alcoholic people because they don't understand it. I'll never forget, you know, the last time I made jail was in Azusa, 1953, a couple of days after Christmas. <clears throat> I called my neighbor. He was a new neighbor. I says, Julie, I'm in jail out in Azusa. Will you get out here and bring a little money? No, he did. <laughs> because he didn't know me very well. <clears throat> he comes out and he bails me out of the can. And we're walking out of jail. He says, Norm, let's get your car and go home. And I stopped. I look him right in the eye. I said, Julie... I don't know where my car is. Now, he's got that Maybelline look. He's just kind of wide-eyed, staring at me. You lost your car? Christ, your car weighs over 4,000 pounds, Norman. How could you lose it? And I wanted to tell him I do it several times a year, you know. You just get a little drunky out there and you lose them. There's not that much to it, really. But I couldn't think of the appropriate words to tell him. So I just said, you know, all right. <laughs> and went on. To... But I never did that again, I'll tell you that. It's embarrassing. <clears throat> and I think one of the highlights of the alcoholic's life, though, is kind of the nights he finds his car. It's kind of a spiritual experience, isn't it? <clears throat> You're walking down the street. There it is, my car, God. It hasn't been impounded. I love your car, Jesus. <laughs> you open the door and you get in, you go to bed again, right, Chair? <laughs> and we talk about all of these things and we laugh a great deal about it, but as we're walking on down that road and we're grinding out, we're losing every loving thing we got, huh? Every loving thing in our life that means anything to us. That whiskey is getting little by little by little until eventually you stand there and you're tapped out and you got nothing going. Huh? The respect of the people I worked for, the people I did business with, eventually was gone. The old Yugoslavs that owned the company sold out in 51. <clears throat> A new group came in from the East Coast. They took it over and they changed the rules and regulations. And they said there's no more booze on the job. And by now I'm in the throes, total throes. I pay no attention to anybody or anything. And I think they need me so desperately they'll never run me out. And so I went my ways. And I kept getting in trouble. And then down in West Texas, on a pipeline we had going from Odessa to Big Spring, 90-mile run. And I got one hell of a jam. It was so bad that after I paid my fine, they took me to Midland. They put me on a plane, they sent me to L.A., and they said, don't come back to West Texas anymore. And then they notified the corporation. And the corporation, in turn, pulled me in and said, no more. You'll never leave L.A. County again for this company. Never. We can't afford you. You're out of line. You drink too much. You're destroying yourself. The next time we smell any booze in your breath, then you're through. You're out. You're gone. We don't care how good you think you are, how good you are. You become too expensive. We would rather have people out there doing that work that we can depend on. We can't depend on you anymore. Now, get out of my office. The humiliation. Humility, we could write volumes. I want to reach over and I want to grab him by the throat. I want to say, who the hell do you think you're talking to, you Johnny-come-lately? Who are you to tell me? Hell, I'm the guy that makes it go. I drive the line. I'm the backbone of that division. Who are you? Yeah, I'm going to fix your wagon, friend. I'm going to quit your rotten company. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Oh, I'm going to open up my own company. I'm going to run you out of business. You're going to have to come down to see me for a job. Yeah, you're going to walk in my office, and I'm going to say, I remember you. Get the hell out of here. 
Yeah, and then you know what I did next? I had another drink, and I dreamed another dream, and I slid off another bar stool. I didn't do anything, <clears throat> because I'm frightened, because I got the heat on, because I'm living on the edge, but I got a rationale up here. Up here, I'm going to get him. Up here, next time is going to be different than the next time and the next time. The next time's never come, do they, huh? You're frightened. And then one day I drive home and I pull in the driveway. <clears throat> one more lie, one more promise I'd always been able to get in, huh? The alcoholic stands there going through the third act with the, uh, the tears are screaming down his face and he stands there. And I said time again, you know, red baby. Baby, give me a break. Hey, don't throw me out. I got a hell of a deal. I got a hell of a deal for you, red. I'm going down to see the priest. Take another pledge. Think of the kids. Christ, don't throw me out. I'll see the doctor, baby. <clears throat> and she relents. And you get back in. The great schemer. And then you start scheming to get back out again. And it becomes a vicious circle until time and time again. Until eventually, why, there ain't no more lying and no more promising. Every alcoholic's life when he's totally sick and tired of being sick and tired. When inside, it's gone. When you're standing there and you're shaving in the morning and you can't stand to look at you. When you're sitting in them gin mills and it's got a mirror and you don't look. Because what you see is you. You can kid every man jack in town. You can lay it on them drunk or sober, but it doesn't mean anything. <clears throat> because you can't kid yourself. The remorse is eating you alive. And you get up and you make that move. And you come to AA. And I want to believe that moment came in my life in February of 1954. I'm laying straight out on the floor. And I'm sick and I don't know it. I don't realize how sick I am. And I get up and I call. I pick up a telephone and I call the central office in Los Angeles. And I ask him, uh, a guy over there named John, if he knows a guy named Sullivan. And he says, you got to be kidding. we got hundreds of Sullivans at AA. It's an Irish allergy, he said. you know his first name? And I said, I don't. I said, I did time with him in a city jail. The seed was planted. <clears throat> he couldn't help me with my friend. But he said, if you got a drinking problem, you never have to take another drink again if you don't want to. He said, Alcoholics Anonymous is the answer, my friend. Give yourself a break. Take down these numbers. Call these people. Until you get a hold of a man that will come to see you. And so I called. And pretty soon a guy, he said, hang in, I'll be on an hour or so. And he came out to see me. And he sat there and he told me about the program. And he laid it out. He was one of those hard-hearted sponsors you hear about in AA. I used to think they sent him to school in Los Angeles to be a hard-hearted sponsor. But his attitude was that you had to go to any lengths to get it. You need us, he says, and we don't need you, and don't you ever forget that. You got to come and get it. He said, you went to any length to get the whiskey, you lied, you cheated, you conned, you stole, you walked, you drove, you went any length. He says, boy, you got to come for the program. He said, I don't, I don't pick people up and take them to meetings. You got a car, you drive. You got a car, what the hell are you doing in AA? Or a watch. He said, here lately, why, the last two or three years, we've been taking chances on guys with cars, and a lot of you guys are working out. And he said, it's all right. I, I, he said, if you got a car, you, you drive down. If you haven't got a car, he says, you can take the bus. If you haven't got the bus money, you can walk. He said, you walk for whiskey, you can walk for sobriety. He said, I'm going to be down in Temple City tonight, the Temple City meeting. I met down at Rosemead. He said, I'm going to be down there. I'm going to meet you if you want to come down. And so that night, I went down. I went down there in spite of him. I went down there in spite of myself. I went down there to prove to him I had a car, I guess. I went down there and said, you know, I, what I want to do is hit him with that car is what I want to do. And while I was laying underneath, I want to say, I got a car, you rotten old man. You're looking at it right up there. Yeah. In spite of myself, God moving in strange and mysterious ways one more time in my life. And I pulled into the Temple City meeting. He comes out. 
<clears throat> he's there in the parking lot, opens the door, I got out, put his arm around me, we walked in. I loved that guy from that day to the day he died. And let me tell you, he was a very controversial individual. Totally. <clears throat> you either liked him or you hated him, there was no middle road. He was a tremendous speaker, carried the message to thousands upon thousands of people. God knows how many people he helped out there. <clears throat> but he had a very difficult time trying to manage the program and manage his program. Tolerance, a God-given quality to let another man live his life the way he wants to live it, not the way I want to direct it. He couldn't let anybody live their lives. He wanted everybody to work his program. And the people in Alcoholics Anonymous aren't going to go for that, are they? No. Very independent. <clears throat> they want to work their own program. He got resentful. And resentments are a luxury that an alcoholic can't afford. And after eight years on the program, he decided that maybe he ought to take a drink. And he drank. <clears throat> and he couldn't get back. He was in that seven, eight-year syndrome that so many people fall into, where they get that seven, eight years of sobriety and they can't get back. He kept trying to come back in, and he would come back, and he would attend a few meetings, and then his ego would get in the way, because he couldn't forget that he was the guy that carried the message to help the people. He couldn't forget that all the people he sponsored were now his sponsors, and he'd go back out again. And he stayed out there damn near 12 years. And then he had a severe heart attack, and drove him to his knees, and he couldn't drink anymore, and he came back. And let me tell you, that year and a half, we had a lot of conversation, and we talked about things that were necessary, and things that weren't necessary. And we laughed a great deal, and we cried a little bit. And I'll always be grateful we had that year and a half together. And I'll always be grateful that I can still say he was the greatest sponsor in the world because he's the guy that took the time to come to see me. He's the guy that sat there on that Sunday afternoon and told me about a way to operate and live. He's the guy that met me down there in that Temple City meeting, introduced me around a lot of people. Seventy, eighty of the finest drunks ever came out of the San Gabriel Valley, I'll tell you that. And we were a very wealthy group in those days. We had so much money in the group, we had donuts before and after the meeting. Can you believe that? Well, we didn't have them cheap jack plain old donuts. We had them red jelly donuts. Very expensive. Good to eat. Good for new people. You see a new guy come through the door and he's all green and hung out. And the red jelly donut committee had slide up on him there. Nice to have you here. You're new, aren't you? Would you like a donut? Oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> I don't know whether you ever looked at a red jelly donut when you got a hangover, <clears throat> but it'll make your teeth itch, I'll guarantee you that. And the guy showed up in front of the meeting that night, the main speaker, and he told everybody, you know, what he was like and what happened. He told everybody what a jackass he was. He talked, you know, he talked about things that have been hiding all my life. He talked about people who were beating him up all the time and all the jails that he was going to, and the people would laugh. He talked about drinking something called Jamaican ginger and they give him the Jake leg, and they were absolutely hysterical over the fact that the bugger couldn't walk. He was in the hospital two months with a Jake leg, couldn't walk. And your sponsor is sitting there nudging you. You know, they got to do it. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? They got you in the front row. Hell, you ain't deaf. You're hearing the whole thing going on. If he's not knocking the hell out of your wife, doesn't listen to that, Harry. That's you right there. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm hearing all of it. And they're laughing. And I think that's very funny. That poor bugger's having a lot of trouble. We ought to feel sorry for him. Why are we laughing? <clears throat> and I get to feeling I can't identify him. In the beginning, I got to identify with this guy. He's a street man. He's out of L.A. I savvy the streets. I know what he's talking about. And there is a point of identification there. But the more he talks, I'm not that bad. What the hell? You know, I've been in 70, 80 jails. Not me. I've been in 25 jails at the outside. And I drank a little Vitalis one time. What's that compared to him? You know, I heard in my home group last year, this guy talking about drinking that Vitalis. He said, the reason he gave it up, it made his arm tired. Shaking it out of a small hole. You know, I... I knew you didn't understand. 
but I never thought about that. I can understand that. And you get it all over your face, too. But anyway, <clears throat> I had to be, you know, I had that feeling of no qualification, really no story to tell. But the man made a profound statement that night. He said, it doesn't make any difference what you drank or where you drank it or how much you consume. It's what it's doing to you. He said, if it's tearing up any part of your life, hell, you, have to, you don't have to go any farther. Yeah, and I thought, okay, I'm not so sure about this booze. I'm not so sure I want to quit drinking on an all-time basis one day at a time, but it, it sure as hell is tearing up my life. And I don't have to tear up anymore. And I knew I didn't because as I looked at this guy, I, I thought, you know, there's an example. Nine and a half years, he hasn't any of that stuff out there. Nine and a half years, no jails, no people knocking the hell out of him. No remorse. A is a program of example. You like what you see, you come back, you're going to see a little more. What he is, speak so loud, I cannot hear a word he says. That night stood the example. A man who said, if I can do it, you can do it. And I'm thinking, maybe I can do it. But the hell, my life hasn't been that bad. To compound all these problems, his woman had divorced him and remarried. His kids, they all hated him. But he said one day he bought the package of this program and his kids came down to see him and they learned to like him, respect him, and love him. And if I'd have looked around, you know what I'd have seen, huh? How do you see those big tough guys in AA? Them hay shakers out of South El Monte, Garvey Acres. Them 200-pound mean gorillas sitting in that meeting and the tears screaming down their face. And they cried for the joy of it all. And the story was told. Heard it thousands of times. That they would laugh because they were miserable and they cried because they were happy and they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. And you may say that's oversimplification. It may be. But hell, it's the only program I got. I discovered through the laughter of the program I could <clears throat> clear out the wreckage of my past. Through the wreckage of the, through the laughter of the program, I'll clear out the wreckage of the future would it come down to see me. God, I hope it doesn't, but would it, would it come down? Give me the strength to laugh a little and clear it out. Through the laughter of the program, I discovered a way that I might live, that I might exist, that I may buy the whole package and make that total transition, that I will no longer be a taker, that I will give. You can't keep what you don't give away. To give. To give for people like me is very difficult, isn't it? Because basically I am not a giver, I'm a taker. I'm a taker of things and a user of people. I'm a loser. All takers in or out of the program are losers. To have something, you must give something. And there's room for everybody in AA, and that's the beauty of the story. My sponsor said, Norm, room for all of us. You pick up the ashtrays or the coffee cups, or you make the coffee, or, or we'll run you for secretary, we'll guarantee you the job. You can go beyond that to central service, general service. You can make the call on the guy that's hurting out there on the street. You can go out there and sit with him, that one-on-one. You can give a little of you to he and he to you. And he grabs a hold of it. And he says, take me to a meeting. And you take him to a meeting. And he takes him to another meeting. And pretty soon he's going on his own. And then a year goes by. And he's standing up there in front of the group. He's getting a cake. And he blows out the candle. And this big tough guy's getting a cake. And the tears are screaming down his face. And he looks out there. And he sees you sitting there. And he says, there's my sponsor. That's Charlie. That's Norm. That's Bill. That's my sponsor. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. He saved my life. And that sense of well-being, you're flooded. And the tears come to your eyes. And you're unashamed. And you cry. And as humble as we alcoholics are, you might turn to the guy sitting next to you. And you might say, I'm his sponsor. Yeah. And you don't do it because you're all torn up on an ego trip. You do it because you want to share the beauty of it all with somebody you love as well as yourself. Another alcoholic that's sitting beside you. To let him know that maybe you helped that guy to help himself to get in another day. 
to go out amongst them out there to help other people to help themselves. That when he goes, he's going to take a little of me with him. And so he and I, and you, and the guy next to you, we're going to walk on down this road from here to eternity, helping people help themselves to get in a day. And when you get down to the bottom line, we can talk about it for the next ten years. When you get right down to it, that's what it's all about, isn't it? And the reward, I might add, to the new people who are sitting out there tonight, the reward is insurmountable. Not something in a material sense, but in a sense of well-being, man, I'll guarantee you the world. A sense of well-being that I found in the whiskey. I drank whiskey because it made me feel good. I have seven or eight drinks, and man, I'm feeling buzzy. And I have eight more to feel eight times better. Isn't that the way it goes? And pretty soon you hit that plateau and you're buzzy all over. And I'd think, I'll have one more just to stay even. Zing, down the chute I'd go. And when I woke up in the morning, that buzz was gone. And in his place was that old friend of mine. You knew him. He was a friend of yours. Old remorse. Walked in every morning. What do you say, Norm? <laughs> and he jerked my guts out. And the only thing that took him out of my life was a little whiskey. I get a little whiskey, and he's gone. And I was restored to a sense of well-being. It was very temporary. And I traded that in for the sense of well-being that I found here. And all I had to do was be willing to be willing to give a little for the hell of it. And want nothing in return. And I'd love to tell everybody out here this evening that every day is a holiday and every meal is a banquet. But that isn't the way it is out there, is it? No. And that isn't what AA guarantees. Sobriety in a way of life, as I made mention. <clears throat> Whatever you're doing, you're going to be better at. And the strength to stand out there and be counted when the days get rough and tough. When the heartbreak and the grief and the misery want to hammer you down. You've seen yours and I've seen mine and unfortunately we'll see some more. And I say only that God give me the strength. I can recall several times over the last 27 years where things got rough. 1962, and I'm eight years sober. <clears throat> and I couldn't hit a lick. And I let my ego overrule my good sense. And I'm making a lot of bad financial decisions. Everything I touch turned to pucky, you know. Uh, financially, I'm in the worst shape in my life. And to compound the problem, by the end of the year, I'm standing in front of St. Luke's Hospital. I'd just been to see the doctor. He told me what happened. And I couldn't believe it. And I said, you screwed up. How could it happen? What the hell you went to school, Doc? How could it happen? I can't believe it. Because things of this magnitude always happen to other people. They never happen to people like me. I got an honest desire to take a drink. I got the Arab search. I can take that whiskey going down. I got a bad program going. And I forgot to remember who the hell I was where I came from and what it took to bring me to that point in my life. I forgot to remember that the old shooter upstairs never gives you more than what you can pack. That he gives the big loads to the big horses and the small ones he's always given the guy's name Norm. Instead of standing around crying a poor mouth about what you didn't get or what you did get, man, you better remember and you better thank him for what you have. Thank you. Thank you very much for the 27 years that you let me walk out there on the sunny side of the street. Jesus, I know guys that died and never saw 27 days I know guys that walk the street of booze and fantasy, busted dreams and broken hearts and tears by the bucket full. My buddy Sullivan that brought the program to me in 46, three years sober, and he went back out and he kept flip-flopping in and out. And a few years ago, his sister-in-law called me. She says, Norm, this is ginger Jesus, I hate to tell you. Sully was drunk last night. He had an internal hemorrhage. He bled to death. And that's the end of the story. And it's so Christ-awful sad. He went out all alone. With the heat on, the screws down. The pitiful part of it all that he went out and he had to justify his existence to the bitter end because he was coming from behind. The alky, when he's out there, he's coming from behind. And he went out. And he justified it. 
the stupidity of his existence to the very end. So you see, I'm overpaid. But I go out tomorrow. I haven't had to justify my existence out there to anybody for a hell of a long time. Because I was clean yesterday, I was clean today, and God willing, I'll be clean tomorrow. And I haven't had to. I've been able to walk out there on that street, the street. The sun is shining most of the time. I've been able to feel respect within myself, and I've generated respect within other people. I'm able to do a job and get all through at the end of the day. I'll drive on home. Pull in my driveway, and I'll walk in the house. And in the house is my woman. And she's a red-headed and, and an Irish woman. She's glad I'm coming in. Not for where I've been or trying to go, but just for what I am today. I'm, I'm her old man. And nobody cries in that joint today because her old man is drunk and tearing it up. And I haven't heard a kid of mine scream at me for years. And I've had the opportunity to watch him go from small ones to big ones. <clears throat> Send some of them out to school to get some education. Not that I'm an advocate of higher education, but I give them the opportunity. If you want to go to school, I'll help you go. I got a couple of sons that are my business partners today. I got daughters that I've taken downtown one by one by one, and I bought them their first pair of, of high-heeled shoes, huh? That don't sound like a hell of a lot unless you missed it. And I put them in the prom dresses, and I seen them blossom out. And I seen the chickens of my life become the women of my life. And I see all these jackasses come around the house and take them out. And... <laughs> they get jackassier every year. I got one at the house. As a matter of fact, she's going to the junior-senior prom tonight. And I'm not there. And I know the son of a bitch that's coming to take her out. <laughs> if I seem a little nervous, you're right. As I told her, I look better when I was laying in the tank, throwing up straight up in the air than he does. That guy right there in my house. <laughs> and they never believe you. <laughs> And I've walked each and every one of her sisters down the aisle, oh, one by one, though, and I've given to these jackasses. I've stood there in front of the altar, and, and I've had the tears screaming down, and I've looked out at my AA buddies, and they're crying. <clears throat> they're crying. Elkies cry all the time. If we went to the opening of a supermarket, we'd cry, wouldn't we? <laughs> but they're crying not because of the misery, but because of the joy they feel that they can share with me. And they know about these jackasses, my friends do. But I'm overemphasizing, really, all my son-in-laws. They all work and they all take baths. That ain't a bad deal. I got one that's a driller in the oil business, and I got one that's a dentist. So I'm going to have teeth and gas any way you want to cut it, right? (laughs) And I've got five granddaughters. They come to my house. They tear the hell out of things. They take the knobs on that TV and they rip them right off and they put peanut butter in my slippers and I want to reach out and I want to say, don't do that. <laughs> and I don't. Because I know I'm overpaid. Because I know guys have never had the opportunity to see grandkids do anything. Because they went out on that street of booze and fantasy. Busted dreams and broken hearts. And I'd love to be able to tell everybody here tonight how very, very lucky I am. But there's never the proper words, are there? How the hell do you tell anybody that every loving thing you are is because of AA? Or any loving thing I'm ever going to be in my life is going to be because of AA? I can only tell you, buddy, if you're new sitting out there, it's been a hell of a walk from the L.A. County Jail and Lincoln Heights to the point that I stand today. And but for the grace of God, Alcoholics Anonymous and friends like Cecil, I could have missed it all. Thanks to me and God love you.